the guards report. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, it will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. It was actually as I came into church, interestingly, um, that I just, I was suddenly aware, staggeringly aware, we sitting here are standing on very broad shoulders. We're standing on a history of discipleship. You and I are here because of disciples for two millennia. That's why we're here. We are here because those first disciples listened to the last words of Jesus and took them seriously. That's why we're here. Um, I didn't actually come to church this morning. I was busy still playing around with this. And I was kind of trying to think of different interesting ways of thinking about the sermon. And I then was powerfully struck by that one verse, all authority has been given to me. And I thought, you know, we have the authority of Scripture. I don't think I'm going to mess with it. And what I've decided to do is I want to say something about the guards' part in our narrative. And there's something about that at the beginning. And then I just want to go through the Great Commission verse by verse. And then I'm going to talk about what I think it, application it might have for us. And then we'll go back to the guards' story very briefly. Let me just pray. Father... We are so aware of the obedience of those first disciples, an obedience which leads to us sitting here in St. John's Church on the 8th of April 2018 as your disciples, some of us perhaps not quite sure. And Father, I ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit and you would just make real to us those final words of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So it is quite interesting and we should wonder why it is that the narrative of the guards is only in Matthew's gospel. You can imagine what it was like. Suddenly there was an empty tomb. Well, now we're for it. How to explain an empty tomb to the chief priests and the elders? You might remember that in chapter 27, those very same chief priests had gone to Pilate and said, look, it's kind of, I know it's nonsense, but, you know, just in case anything untoward happened, could could we have a special guard by the tomb? And most commentators would agree that Pilate did not give them a Roman guard, but they were the temple guards who came. But punishment for allowing a convicted criminal, even a dead one, to escape carried a heavy punishment. How to explain the extraordinary vision of a man shining all in white? That is what they had actually seen. How to explain the fact they saw him move this stone, a stone which had the Roman seal on either side and a large rope across it. It really was too much. So what the guards decided to do was to say it as it was, and they hurried off to the chief priests. And I'm not sure if they were more scared of what they'd actually seen or what the chief priests would say, but they didn't need to worry. As it turns out, the chief priests were far more worried than they were. They had heard Jesus' claims. They had been in his presence. They had sensed his power. His utterly confident conviction of his position as the Son of God, the King of the Jews. Could it be true? The consequences were too shocking to contemplate. If they got hold of this story, this resurrection story, it could spread throughout the whole Roman Empire. Where would it stop? There might be no stopping it. What would happen to the delicate balance of power between the Jewish leaders and the Romans? So this involvement of the guards is only reported in Matthew. Why was it so important to Matthew? Well, I think we can safely say that Matthew was the most Jewish of the gospel writers. The whole thrust of his gospel, starting with the genealogy, was to make explicit and meaningful links between God's ancient promises and the fulfillment of them. He was a writer to the Jewish people. He refers more than any of the other gospels to the Old Testament. He's good on detail. He was a tax collector. He was empowered by the Romans, yet part of the Jewish community. He understood people, both his fellow Jews and his Roman masters. He knew personally how money corrupts, how corrupted he had been, until that day that we read in Matthew 9 when Jesus walked by and said, follow me. And that's what Matthew did. He got up and he followed Jesus.
Matthew was very keen that the complete story, the part that the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, had taken in the narrative of the resurrection was clearly noted. It was important to him. I'll come back to that story at the end. And so Matthew now segues quite neatly from the resurrection to the guard story to the final words of Jesus. So during the past 40 days, Jesus had made numerous appearances to his disciples. Matthew just records this final one, versions of which also do appear in Mark and Luke and in Acts. Jesus appears to around 500 disciples, including the 11 who traveled from Jerusalem to Galilee. Now we know this from reading 1 Corinthians 15, 6. We're not told exactly where, but Galilee had always, if you like, it had kind of been the geographical heartland of Jesus's ministry. And you can imagine that the word had spread. Have you heard? Jesus is coming to Galilee. Have you heard? We should all go there. Have you heard? Come on, come on, guys. Some of them will not have already seen him risen. So there was a certain amount of excitement. So just to put all this in context, I quite like to have things clear in my head. We obviously had the crucifixion. We have three days later the resurrection. And 40 days later, Jesus ascended. And it was during those 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension that Jesus appears in bodily form to his disciples many times, culminating in what we call the Great Commission. And 10 days after his ascension came Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. You get the picture. What? 7.5 weeks, I worked it out. I mean, wow. I mean, that's a two months not to forget, isn't it? I mean, goodness me, what must have that been like? So let's just look at what this Great Commission was. I'm going to just take it briefly, verse by verse. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go again. We don't know which one. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. There's Jesus, somewhere in the distance, and some worshipped, and others doubted. This particular word for doubted, it's edistrasan occurs only twice in the New Testament. And interestingly, the other time it occurs is in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 14, 31, where Peter, do you remember Peter was walking across the water? Whoa, suddenly he doubted. And he held out his hand to Jesus. He doubted. Peter was afraid but he still reached out to Jesus. Doubting in this context, we should not necessarily understand as unbelief. It's a hesitation, an unsureness. Well, I mean, kind of, wouldn't you be unsure? 
everybody says Jesus has risen and, and he's there in the distance. I, I think it's Jesus, but I'm right at the back of this lot of 500 people or I'm right at, and I'm not quite sure and I'm not entirely sure if I believe it. They were disciples. But they did, some of them, doubt. I find that quite reassuring. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Wow. Jesus came. You can imagine, can't you? He was perhaps standing a bit far back and and he came. He came to them all. And Jesus, even when we doubt, will still come to us if we don't turn our back. If we stay with our doubts, stay with our doubts. Not quite sure. Jesus came. Isn't that marvellous? That tiny, tiny little report from Matthew. Jesus came. And he will come in the fullness of his authority. Jesus' universal sovereignty. He has authority in heaven and on earth as Lord, as King, as Saviour, as Mediator. His authority is a sovereign, kingly reign given to him by God the Father. There is none higher. And on our parts, it is an act of faith to accept that. That is part of an act of faith on our part. Next verse. Therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. I love those little words, therefore. So, therefore, you've heard my authority. You've seen the crucifixion. You've seen my resurrected body. You have seen the miracles. You've heard my teaching. In view of all of this, I am now giving you a command. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is our universal task. The imperative here is to make disciples. The go and make is a kind of, go on, off you go, do it. Do what? Make disciples. Whoa, that's the vicar's job. Or that's for those really mouthy, confident people who have all the answers to all the difficult questions. Oh no, it's our job. The commission was given to 500 plus disciples, not just to the 11. And the Great Commission was not addressed to non-believers, but to those who were already followers of Jesus, to those who were already disciples. So are you a disciple of Jesus? Because if so, my friend, this commission is for you and it's for me. 
if we are disciples of Jesus. So what about this whole business of baptizing people? Interesting. You and I don't normally go around baptizing people. Do you know what? That's a whole different sermon which Eddie can preach. Uh, But whilst in this day and age, it is commonly the ordained ministry who baptize, with a few exceptions, the reality is that in the early church, many different people baptized. Baptism was and is, I would like to say merely, but I don't quite mean it like that, a public declaration of a personal decision to submit our lives to Jesus as Lord and Saviour, to accept the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to acknowledge our sinfulness, to accept forgiveness, and to be part of God's people, to be part of his body here on earth. That is actually what baptism is. So, as disciples, we're called to live out our baptismal vows every day. Whether they were made on our behalf and confirmed in later years, or made by ourselves as adults. As disciples, we're declaring to one another that we want to be followers of Jesus. And the final verse, teaching them to obey all my commandments, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. We're not alone. Jesus is with us. Ten days after his ascension came Pentecost and that amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, we read the astonishment of those in Jerusalem who recognized the Galileans, some of whom had heard Jesus in Galilee. They were part of the 500. Jesus may have bodily risen, but he left us his spiritual presence, his indwelling presence, to give us authority and power. But not only that, it says, I love this, he actually has promised to remind us of everything he said. He's promised to remind us. So when the Great Commission says, obey all that I have commanded you, the Holy Spirit will remind us of what those commands are. We don't need to get overstressed about it. In John 14, 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said. Jesus was not commissioning us to do it alone. He is with us. So what can we this evening take from this? It's such a familiar passage. Is there anything new that we can learn for ourselves? I believe there is, and I tell you why I believe that. Because you see, the Holy Spirit is living and active. Jesus is alive here today, now. He can speak to you and to me in fresh ways, ways we may not have thought about before. 
So my challenge to us all, including myself, is this very simple statement. And it might come up on the screen. To make disciples, we need to be disciples. Does that make sense? To make disciples, we need to be disciples. So, what do you and I need to do to be an ongoing disciple? To keep on every day living out the life of a disciple. And are we doing it? Are we intentionally discipling each other in our small groups? Now, what's your small group like? Is it a nice social place? I hope so. Good food sometimes? I hope so. But are we teaching one another by sharing what's challenged or encourages us from God's word? Are we teaching one another by our lifestyle, by God-driven decision-making? Where do you go for wisdom or reassurance about a new job, a house move, fear of redundancy, illness, questions about a relationship? If somebody kind of vaguely interested in Christianity came to your small group, would they hear about Jesus-focused lives? In our families, would it be obvious that somebody is walking into a Christ-centered home? At home where Jesus is Lord, where we pray, where we do God talk together. Where reading the Bible is just a natural part. Where where going to a Bible verse is a kind of a normal thing. Oh, goodness, I know there's a verse somewhere that really, really would speak to me about this, or my friend, or what. Is that normal? Is that normal among our lives? I hope so. I want it to be the norm in my life. I'm asking God to make it more and more and more the norm. And part of being a disciple, of course, is making disciples. As we live disciples' lives, we shall be making disciples. We can't help it. At times, it will be very intentional. Have a look at the sermon questions. Um, They are good prompts for how that intentionality might be done. But, you know, wherever we are, Whatever we're doing in our lives, the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit will speak through us. For many of our friends, I think this is a challenge, long before those seeking to understand something of Christianity pick up a Bible, they will have read us. They will study us. They will question us. And when they read us, are they reading the ways of the world? Or are they reading lives that seek to obey all that Jesus has commanded us? The greatest challenge in making a disciple is to be a disciple. 
Our vision at St. John's is to grow. How do we grow? By living out the Great Commission. On our website, it says one of our three vision points is grow in discipleship, tagline, purposeful building up of followers of Christ, followers of Jesus. I wasn't converted through high-profile evangelism. I know those who have. I've been involved in Billy Graham, Louis Palau missions, and it's a marvellous thing to witness. Scales, literally, kind of coming off the eyes. And, wow, this is real. I was brought to a living relationship with Jesus through the lives and the teaching and the testimonies of his disciples. Perhaps I'll share a little bit about that. I've been to church most of my life, but it was what classically these days we call low Anglican churches, communion, once every now and again. We didn't talk about faith. My parents, I know, were Christians, they believed, but you just didn't talk about it. But once, as a teenager, I went to what would have been a kind of Christian coffee shop. It was actually quite cool. I remember there was a few psychedelic lights. It was the 60s, you know. It was, it was quite a place, really. But apart from the psychedelic lights, what I really remember is somebody came up to me and said, do you know God loves you? It was so random. And yet... I never, ever forgot it. I never went back to this place. I remember it now. It was in Guildford in Surrey, and it was called Bar None. I never went back. I don't really know why. I think I was just too busy in that rather hedonistic wilderness without God. And I just didn't go back. But later on, a few years later, I needed, I needed some answers to some major life decisions and I found myself one lunchtime going into a central London church at midday and I remember literally actually I shouted that was so rude (laughs) but I actually shouted God if you're there I need some answers and I need them now boom and you know God in his infinite mercy answered questions about very major future decision, decisions that included him there, <laughs> I would have to say. And I went to church, I had faith, but God could always be set aside, my Sunday activity. And then I went to a, what was a sort of a pre-alpha course. And I heard really for the first time about the ongoing presence of Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit. And I remember reading, it was actually read to me, the story of the prodigal son, and I just wept. Um, I realized that God was, was, was big enough to embrace all of my past and my present and my future. My God had been simply too small, too limited. Suddenly, I knew, I knew that God loved me, all of me, and I repented. And I knew that my life needed to change. 
So, sadly, perfection is not in my DNA. Perhaps it's in yours. And it was a long journey. It's still a long journey. And I just want to say to us all, here in this wonderful place where we seemingly all do love one another, we do need to learn to live with one another's imperfections, with acceptance and not judgment, with love and not condemnation, with transparency. Scripture tells us that if a brother offends you in the first instance, go to that brother or sister, sort it out. Don't go and gossip. In a world rampant with fake news, misinformation, the gospel message, our integrity as truthful people, our integrity as people whose yea is yea and whose nay is nay, I think is going to be one of the most precious commodities that we can offer family and friends around us. Let us be truthful people. Let us be men, women and children of integrity. The reality of the resurrection, the truth of Jesus' teaching, is the solid ground on which we can place our hopes and fears. Back to the guard's story as we draw to a close. Do you notice how Matthew deals with that story? There's no persuasion. There's no sort of argument. These are the irrefutable facts of the empty tomb, and these are the irrefutable facts that the guard saw something absolutely mind-blowing, and the chief priest tried to hide it with a very cock-and-bull story and a lot of money that really didn't stand the test of investigation. At its simplest, if the guards were asleep, they wouldn't have known what happened to Jesus' body, and if they were awake, they would have stopped the disciples taking it. I mean, it's fairly low-level lawyer stuff, really, isn't it? Um, We cannot, of ourselves, persuade anyone of the truth of the resurrection. We can point people to sources and facts. We can testify to our own belief. We can be available to the Holy Spirit to inspire us with scriptures and lead people to an understanding of the gospel. All those things we must do. But we cannot, indeed, we should not argue. Our very best arguments, do you know this, are nothing compared to the power of God's love to soften the heart of somebody who seeks him. Our arguments are not going to soften any hearts, are they? God's love will. Some of you um, have already heard, seen the film, The Case for Christ. I kind of want to make a bit of a plug here. Uh, I can't remember the date, but we're going to be doing a course here around The Case for Christ. The thing to me that's so exceptional about this film, Louis and I saw it... um, about a week ago now. You can get it on, on if you've got, uh, uh, what is that thing called? Apple TV or some, something like that. Anyway, you can get it on Apple TV. It's brilliant. Um, but what's so exceptional about this film is in all these days of argument and counter-argument, it's a simple presentation of the facts. 
historical, anthropological, theological, medical, psychological perspectives declare the truth of the resurrection. The facts speak powerfully on their own. When we make disciples, we do not need to prove the gospel. All authority belongs to Jesus. We proclaim his authority, not our own. We proclaim his truth, his teaching, his message. And we proclaim our own submission to that teaching. We proclaim our own repentance and the wonderful forgiveness that Jesus brings us. Let me encourage you, if you've got friends, neighbours, bring them to the Case for Christ course. It's actually riveting stuff. I'm just going to end with some verses um, from Acts 5. In Acts 5, the Holy Spirit had come. Disciples were being made right, left and centre. The Sadducees were furious. They arrested the apostles. They put them in prison. An angel let them out again. They went back out there and they were preaching the gospel again. And when the Sadducees heard, they'd not only got out of prison, but were preaching, they they were incandescent, and they wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a while. In this present case, I advise you, he said, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men, and you will only find yourselves fighting against God. And so it was. And to this day, people are fighting against God. In order to make Disciples, we are called to be disciples, living out our baptismal vows, loving one another in such a way that people will look at us and will say, wow, these are disciples of the living God. Let me just pray as we end. Father, you know us so well. You love us completely. You see into each of our hearts. Your great commission declares that all authority has been given to you and that you have passed on that authority for us to make disciples. And Father, I ask now that as we search our own hearts, you would reveal to us places where you do not have full authority over our lives. Areas of our lives that we keep to one side, as I know I did for so many years. Areas of our lives that perhaps we think are not important enough. Father, we want to live lives as full disciples, daily disciples of the living God.
And we ask, Father, that you would enable that in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen.